All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm speaking to you from the borough of Queens, New York City. It is the 29th of November, 2022. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening to the show and um, encourage you to send along whatever comments you have about it to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Dot com. And of course, we do want to thank our sponsors because uh, they make this show possible. Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Gold Bull Resources, El Oro Resources, Reina Gold Mining, Lion One Metals, and Timberline Resources are today's sponsors. I've titled today's show, The U.S. Has Sold Out the American People. James Rickards and Dr. Quentin Henning return. James visits to talk about his latest book titled Sold Out. It focuses on broken global supply chains, surging inflation, and the fastest rise in interest rates in our history. Add to that a Western world that is on the verge of bankruptcy thanks to the overconsumption and undersavings that have taken place ever since 1971, and you have the potential for a global depression akin to, or God forbid, possibly worse than that of the 1930s. Even prior to COVID and the Ukrainian war, Rickards predicted that when this current bubble implodes, national central banks would would themselves become bankrupt and thus give way to the IMF that would replace the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency with the SDR. It's a unit of currency that would include various currencies and gold. With central banks now losing control of inflation, forcing interest rates dramatically higher, Rickard's prediction that central banks are heading towards insolvency, indeed, seems to be coming true. Certainly, if you look at the balance sheets of various central banks, they are underwater because they loaded up on low-priced, low-interest low rate um, debt, and as the interest rates are rising, those, uh, those assets are underwater. And so, actually, the uh, net worth of, of various major central banks are now negative. COVID policies and the war in the Ukraine are no doubt accelerating the demise of the existing dollar-based fiat system. I'll try to get an answer from Jim Rickards as to where he sees this current mess playing out, how it's going to play out, and how you can best protect your financial well-being and safety in the turbulent times to come. We do have a very long show today, a a lot to talk about, so I'm going to be uh, very brief here and just say that uh, we're going to go to break, but uh, I'd suggest you not go very far away, especially if you're interested in silver, because Dr. Quentin Henning is going to be with me right after the first, uh, right after this break, uh, to talk about El Oro's Isca Isca world-class silver tin 
polymetallic deposit that really is starting to look like a world-class silver mine. It could be one of the one of the largest silver mines in the world. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka Project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to tell you that Quentin Henning is back with me today, this time uh, to give us an update on El Oro Resources. It's uh, that company's silver tin rich polymetallic deposit uh, called the Isca Isca. It's in Bolivia, uh, and it's a project that appears destined, it seems to me anyway, destined to become one of the largest uh, silver mines in the world with uh, considerable values of tin, lead, and zinc as well. Uh, El Oro trades in Canada under the symbol ELO. You can buy it down here in the States, ELRRF. 70 million shares thereabouts, $2.61 when I last checked earlier today, giving it a market cap for around $183 million. Thanks for joining me again, Quentin. Always a pleasure, Jay. Thank you. Uh, It's so good to have you again. And I I do understand with regard to El Oro, uh, I understand that the company, they put out a press release this morning. uh, it's my understanding that the definition drill program in the Santa Barbara target, that's the main the main target that they've been shooting at for the last couple of years, that the company is planning to provide a maiden resource in 2023. So I guess they've have they finished uh, the drilling for that Santa Barbara to enable them now to, uh, to provide a, a maiden resource? Yes, that's exactly right. If you look at the, the history of drilling at uh, Iske Iske, they started, I think, roughly September of 2020. So we're a little over two years into this project. Uh, they've completed, I believe, north of 80,000 meters as mm-hmm. of news release. And I think they have a few, you know, say 10, 15,000 meters left of, of drill holes in the lab. Uh, but you're right. They, they have done a very uh, focused program to drill off uh, an initial resource target area uh, around the Santa Barbara uh, feeder, but also extensions to the northwest and to the southeast from that. So it's it's an absolutely enormous area. It's like it's a system that has yet to be defined. Like the limits have yet to be defined. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, this is really whatever they come out with an initial resource here is going to be a starting point. It's not going to be the total uh, mineral system by any stretch. But well, uh, I do, they're going to come out with an enormous number. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd like to, if, if you can give us a little more color on that. For example, uh, can you talk about uh, the Santa Barbara area that will probably be in the in the maiden resource? Can you give us some sense of the dimensions of that? Yeah, certainly. Look, uh, they're always good about putting maps on, on their website. At this point, I think the entire uh, envelope of what they're targeting, which is usually shown, I think, in a red dash line on their maps, is uh, nearly two kilometers from northwest to southeast. So it's it's absolutely huge. It's about a kilometer wide or up to a kilometer wide, I should say. And I, I think some of the deepest drill holes test as far as 800 meters vertically below surface, it is open at depth. But that, that gives you a sense of the scale. I mean, we're talking about, you know, uh, somewhere between one and a half and two cubic kilometers of rock that have been tested, <laughs> which is uh, just mind boggling. Now, it's not to say all of it is mineralized, okay? You know, a subset of that is mineralized. Um, I would say within the the you know, let's kind of keep it real here. Uh, let's talk about the Santa Barbara core area there where they're seeing the high-grade feeder and, and clearly enough, you know, uh, an increased grade of of silver, zinc, lead, and, and even tin in places. Um, you know, that that I would expect to deliver a few hundred million tons, you know, exactly where they're going to rent, you know, maybe, maybe a, a half a billion tons. I, I don't know. But I think it's going to be a big initial number. Uh, I think it will grow from there. Uh, there's certainly, lot, you know, the geophysics has a huge expression, so there's certainly a lot more area to to test. And they, of course, have that tin porphyry uh, likely buried at depth on the south end of the whole system here. So, you know, this this is a, it's going to be an exciting story to watch it unfold. I think, uh, you know, most people don't understand the Bolivian systems because there's not a lot of these in the market, you know, like mm-hmm. – uh, if you look at, at publicly traded companies, really, this is the first first publicly traded company that that has has one of these for many many years. Like Apex Silver, way way back, and this is going mm-hmm. back 15 or 20 years ago. I had St. Cristobal mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they developed that property, I think, starting in the mid to late 1990s, uh, and they they drilled it up and then took it into production around 2006 or seven, I believe it was. Um, that is is a very similar deposit they just to give people a perspective it's a wow. large tonnage you know it's like uh, 300 million tons in that case of about uh an ounce ounce and a tenth of silver something like a 35 gram silver color and about one and a half to, to 1.6 or 7 percent combined zinc lead mm. in the case of st Cristobal, no tin there is tin at iski iski which is a big uh addition uh to to value you know the tin content even though it's uh, on the order of about 0.1, 0.2%, somewhere in that range, uh, with tin prices where they're at, you know, that that is a significant value add. Yeah, and um, do you suspect that, I mean, I know they're, they're going to be doing a lot of infill drilling. Uh, I suppose continuing to do infill drilling as the, pro- as the project progresses, but do you think an ounce, uh, two ounces, two ounces silver equivalent, have you any sort of sense of what the average yeah. grades yeah. might be? Yeah, I've been yeah, I've been keeping track. In, in you know the the mineralized intervals are what I'm focused on. I'm not uh-huh. looking at the entire lengths of the drill holes by any stretch. I would say right now, roughly uh, 30, 40 percent of the volume of that that initial target area that I mentioned. You know, the two kilometers by one kilometer uh-huh. 
hundred meters. I'd say thirty thirty percent of that volume is is looking like it. Thirty to forty percent, I should say, has uh, mineralized inter intercepts. You know, so that uh, if, you, if you put all those in a bag, kind of do a weighted average, I get somewhere in the neighborhood of, of three or four ounces silver equivalent. Wow, and that's silver equivalent. And and how much does tin factor into that? Uh, tin, tin is a big contributor. In fact, in many places, tin actually the value of the tin uh, exceeds the silver. So I would say it's a, at least as important as the silver, as the silver, if not a bit more. Mm -hmm. Wow! And uh, as you, uh, I think you just alluded to the fact that it looks like there might be a richer tin resource to the south. And uh, recently, I believe the company expanded its holdings there in the direction of of that south southwestern portion of this big caldera, right? That is correct. Yeah, they I, apparently they've been working on that acquisition, that land acquisition for quite some time. I think part of the reason they haven't pursued it as aggressively as they, they might have initially planned is because they were trying to get that deal done and recorded in the, with the government. Uh -huh. Now, it is able to uh, test it a little more aggressively. It does give them access to the to the lower uh, topography in that area, so it should be easier to drill. Uh, that deep target from lower elevations than it would from, say, the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. um, well, this this certainly does seem to be a world-class uh, deposit and, and clearly uh, a lot more work to do. But it certainly, it seems to me, the market's going to want to see this maiden resource. I mean, I, I'm really anxious to, to see, you know, what it's going to look like. Uh, and then there'll be probably more infill drilling that could maybe make it better even, possibly. I don't know. Uh, worse the, the infill drilling no the infill drilling is is going to help it always does uh, i yeah. think it's going to give better definition usually in in a case like this infill drilling uh has has very little impact on the overall tons but it, what it typically does in, at least in my experience is it usually enhances the grade because as, as you do more infill drilling you start to get better definition on the the what would be smaller volumetrically smaller but higher grade parts of the system and and those are what can add a lot of um, you know ultimate grade to your your overall resource. So I think uh, this initial resource will will probably be heavily you know inferred and maybe some indicated. There's certainly enough drilling in in the core area around Santa Barbara to have some indicated. But I think uh, going forward you'll see a continued improvement as a in infill drill. Uh, you'll see a continued improvement in the overall grade. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed in today's news release there was some reference to I think one of the drill holes was a metallurgical hole drilled for a metallurgical studies uh, has the company I think they did some work before on metallurgy did they not they did they put uh, some initial metallurgical results out I believe it was within the past half year maybe in June sometime that's mm -hmm. my guess and and the results were, were very strong so you know let's kind of step back and look at this thing uh, like I said, this is it's a big low grade system. So you should think of this more like a, a porphyry type system or something, mm -hmm. in at least in ter terms of its grade and so forth. Okay, so uh, we're looking at uh, basically a, a suite of metals, including silver, lead, zinc, and and tin in mm -hmm. this. And you're going to have to produce several concentrates. Okay, the the likely outcome is going to be producing a zinc concentrate. That would be number one. The second concentrate would be uh, a lead concentrate, which would capture a lot of the silver, mm -hmm. and then a, a separate tin concentrate. Okay, so you have three different concentrates. Um, 
the the lead and the zinc were flow tested uh, earlier this year, and the mm -hmm. results were fantastic. The recoveries, uh, my recollection is, the recoveries were in the 80s of percent, and that's very typical for for a system like this. So I think uh, the recoveries are well. They're they're telling us that this is well within the range of, of what should be expected for this type of system. Uh, they're low in deleterious elements, so there's not a lot of nasty elements that smelters don't like in there. They're mm -hmm. very clean concentrates, and they have a, a very high silver uh, component. Even the zinc captured some of the silver, so that should mean that these concentrates are are widely you know sought after. In, in the smelting space around the world. Okay, there's a lot of demand for, for zinc and lead concentrates. Uh, and then as far as the tin goes, the uh, work that they were doing on the tin, I think they did some gravimetric work or gravity recovery, mm -hmm. and they were shifting more towards uh, a flotation uh, recovery for the mm -hmm. tin, which occurs as a mineral called cassiterite. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because I think it was fairly fine grain. They were finding out the tin mineral uh this cassiterite is fairly fine grain and it's it's likely going to be that flotation is the better means of recovery uh they haven't published any further information about recovery of tin yet but mm -hmm. my hunch is looking at other bolivian systems in the area uh which there are several state-owned bolivian uh mines of this this type i would say they should see pretty decent tin recoveries. i don't think there's going to be any nasty surprises there Right, there could be some variation, though, as I understand it, uh, the the uh, the percentage of different metals changes in different parts of this of this deposit. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. Uh, so it, it is a zone deposit. Um, up high, you you typically get the the zinc and lead and silver. Uh, so you know, if you look at these drill holes, even the ones that came in today, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, fairly shallow levels. You're seeing high high grades of lead zinc. You know, usually a percent and a half or two or so combined, and then uh, silvers in the, usually in the tens of grams. And then as you you look at some of the numbers that are coming from depth, you start to see that tin pickup. So tin usually occurs a little bit deeper, at least in in higher concentrations. And that's as you get closer to the to the uh, source, the you know magmatic source for the 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 fluids that generated the mineral deposit itself right oh quentin let me just uh, just a couple of minutes here left to go uh, uh this is going to be a big deposit this is a big deposit obviously as you just uh, as you just outlined uh it's going to require an awful lot of capital are there big mining companies that might be interested in something like this because it's it's not something that i don't think el oro is going to try to tackle uh absolutely look there's a lot of companies uh right now looking for for new zinc deposits to to develop there's zinc is one of these metals that we, we often forget to look for as exploration geologists and mining companies. And right now there is a shortage of new zinc mines. Okay, so there's a demand for these things. And I think you're starting to see uh, a lot of companies, you know, the more typical companies like Tech and Glencore and, and uh, you know, even even some of the Aussies like BHP and stuff start to expand in and Rio uh, expand into these uh, types of, of deposits. These are world-class deposits. They do require a fair bit of capital. Uh, my bet is this will probably be developed at a rate of maybe 50 to 100,000 tons of ore per day. Mm. Uh, a mine like that might take a, a billion and a half dollars to develop or something. So right. it's not for the faint of heart. It's probably not going to be developed by Elora, but it will likely be targeted and bought by, by one of these major mining companies. Right. Um, well, I guess just one final question then before we let you go, Quentin. Uh, is the company well-funded? 
And what are they planning to do after they come out with this resource? Do you have an idea about that? Yeah, look, they're doing a PEA alongside uh, this this resource. The goal here is to deliver not only a resource but also a PEA, either mm-hmm. concurrently or shortly thereafter. Um, I think they're going to continue drilling, at least on a limited basis, to test some of these uh, extensions, do infill, and test this porphyry at depth. Uh, but I, I don't know exactly how much cash they have in the bank, but I understand they're, they're, they've are they're they got plenty of cash to make it through this MRE. So I think I think until that time, I don't see any uh, any need for capital raise that I know of, at least. All right. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Quentin, for updating us on this very exciting story. I think if people are looking for a silver play, this is one they might want to take a look at. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Jim Rickards will be with me um, to share his ideas about where the global economy and the markets are headed as we uh, start thinking about 2023 and to talk about his new book titled Sold Out. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jim Rickards. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have James Rickards with me once again. For those of you who may not know James, he is a prolific writer and a New York Times bestseller, author of The Death of Money, Currency Wars, and many more books, including his latest book titled Sold Out, How Broken Supply Chains, Surging Inflation, and Political Instability Will Sink the Global Economy. James has been an advisor uh, on international economics and financial threats to the Department of Defense and and the U.S. Intelligence community. He served as a facilitator of the first ever financial war games conducted by the Pentagon. Uh, James is with me today to discuss his latest book, Sold Out. Welcome, James, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Jazz. Great to be with you. You know, before we get started, I'd like to ask you, uh, I know you're constantly writing books, it seems, almost one a year, but if you could tell our listeners if there's some way people can keep in touch with your thoughts on an ongoing basis and not have to wait every year to to find out what you're thinking. Is there a place they can go, Twitter or whatever? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I have a couple of platforms. I'm very active on uh, Twitter. My handle there is at James G. Rickards. It's R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S, all one word. So at James G. Rickards. Also, uh, 
I have a newsletter, uh, a number of newsletters, but the kind of the flagship is called Strategic Intelligence from Paradigm Press. So uh, if your listeners just Google, you know, my name and Strategic Intelligence uh, or Paradigm, it'll it'll pop up, and uh, there's a link there for those who are interested. You can uh, subscribe, and um, it's a it's a it's a, it's a lengthy piece. It's a very good uh, very good price point. Um, mm-hmm. It's relatively inexpensive. Mm-hmm. We we produce about eight nine thousand words a month yeah. so uh there's, there's a lot there and welcome people to have a look at that i'd like to start out with a question that uh, adam taggart likes to ask his guests and that is what is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets well uh first of all i like the way you asked the question jay because those are two separate things uh, mm-hmm. the economy is a is a big subject i'll, I'll address that uh, but financial markets have a dynamic of their own and have their own source of problems but um the uh the financial so the economic outlook is not good we're in uh, we're entering a uh, what i expect will be a very severe global recession there are lots and lots of indicators of that it looks like the united states had a um, a mild recession in the first half of 2022 uh growth in the first quarter was uh negative about negative 1.6% uh annualized second quarter was uh, negative 0.9% again annualized Approximately, but two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. That's the, you know, the standard definition of a, of a recession. Uh, and we had that. Um, now it looks like the third quarter, we're going to get that number, um, uh, you know, shaping up and, uh, third quarter is relatively strong. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, perhaps that recession in uh, the first half was, was merely technical or relatively mild. That looks like the case. But a lot of the third quarter GDP, and that, that number is, uh, you know, is coming strong, is inventory accumulation. Now, this is the way they do GDP. It's not all final sales. It's actually inventory. Now, that's a purchase. And if there's some, you know, net margin at the retail level, they pick that up separately. And that's okay as long as the inventory is going out the door in the form of sales. <laughs> but the, the smarter economists I know look at those two things separately, and they judge more by final sales, and those are not holding up. So what's happened, um, I, I talk about this in my book, Sold Out, but what's happened is, um, well, I mean, just to go back a year or so, fall of 2021, right? Mm-hmm. Headlines, uh, you know, the supply chain's broken down, Port of Los Angeles is backed up, uh, mm-hmm. not enough truckers, you know, et cetera. That's all we heard about. And it was all true. Uh, again, I, I document all this in my book. Um, but purchasing managers in early 2022 said, well, hold on. If the supply chain's broken down, uh, I can't get what I want. I'll, I'll put in a double order or a triple <laughs> order, and maybe I'll get one-third. So I'll order three times as much, hope, hope that I get one-third. And my inventory will be about right. But what happened was some of these uh, log jams were alleviated, not completely, but some of them were. So all of a sudden, the triple order shows up just in time for the Fed tightening, monetary tightening, which started in March and then continued through, um, uh, you know, May, June, July, uh, you know, September, uh, November, more rate hikes all along the way, which was destroying demand. And that's a, maybe we can spend a minute on the difference between supply side supply inflation and demand inflation mm-hmm. but the inflation was coming from supply bottlenecks which we just talked about the fed can't do anything about them the fed doesn't drill for oil they don't drive trucks they don't run trains all they can do is destroy demand so you had this first you have the bottleneck in the fall of 2021 then everyone orders twice as much or three times as much stuff as they need the stuff actually shows up just in time for demand destruction by the fed so now the warehouses are full now that will 
uh, that will show up in GDP, but we're not seeing the final sales. Uh, and the reasons for that, the demand side is being destroyed partly by the Fed, partly, partly for other reasons. I know what logistics managers do or sales managers do in that situation. They just start dumping the merchandise because it's sure. very, exp- very expensive to hold inventory, cutting prices, doing sales, two for one, whatever it takes, and just getting stuff out the door. So at best, you're selling everything at a discount, uh, which reduces revenues and margins and profits, and that'll show up in the stock market. Mm-hmm. At worst, you you can't you can barely give it away because the demand is destroyed. I, you know, say if it if it used to uh, take um, you know seventy dollars to fill up your Ford F one fifty pickup truck, today it's one hundred and forty dollars. You know, yeah. relative to where it was a year ago. Mm. Well, people do it. The demand is inelastic. You need the gasoline. You got to go to work or shopping or whatever it might be. But if you spend twice as much, you're not going to spend on something else. You're you're going to skip, you know, dinner out, a sporting event, a concert, uh, a new dress, a new suit, whatever it may be, and that's where the demand destruction comes in. So, so the the basic economy is a mess. Started with the supply chain breakdown, then the inflation that we saw. Now, as I talk about in my book, we might even be looking at deflation mm-hmm. in 2023 nobody's nobody's looking for that that's mm-hmm. that's at the bottom of everyone's list but that could be coming so that's so and and it's worse in china it's worse in europe we're very familiar with um the energy shortages i mean germany the germans are just going to freeze in the dark this winter uh um, seriously they're out uh germans are out in the woods chopping down trees to get firewood to stay warm this winter uh there's there's no firewood for sale in germany uh there are going to be um blackouts uh there is going to be rationing of power they're going to make people set their thermostats at, you know, like the equivalent of 50 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, they're on a centigrade system, but what we would know is 50 degrees Fahrenheit. People will be sleeping in sleeping bags in their own beds and burning woods. I mean, burning wood, it's almost, uh, I'd say medieval, but it's almost, you know, you know Neolithic. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to the caveman <laughs> days. Um, poles are lined up uh, in trucks and uh, pickup trucks and cars. At coal depots to get coal, they want to just shovel coal in the trunk of their car or the back of their pickup truck again. And for days on end, they're sleeping in their cars not to lose their place in line. So the European economy will be in a severe recession. It's already entering that, and but with serious consequences. People are going to die of hypothermia. Uh, Japan is hit the wall. China, they, you know, they're not transparent about their numbers. They lie about a lot of what they do, but they're probably in a recession this year, which considering it's the world's second largest economy and it's used to 7 to 10% growth, the idea that they're even in the single digits, let alone a recession, is shocking, but they are. And the U.S. is, is not far behind. We're looking at a severe recession. So the economic outlook is miserable, and that will be reflected in stocks. I was going to say, um, now you mentioned financial. Let's kind of look at that separately. And a lot of people confuse the two. There are recessions in business cycles, and as I, I expect we're entering a severe recession right now. But there are also financial crises, uh, which we've seen, you know, 1994, the Mexican tequila crisis, 1998, the Russia long-term capital management crisis. I had a front row seat on that one. I actually negotiated that, um, that Fed-sponsored rescue plan for on behalf of long-term capital. Uh, 2008, obviously, the global financial crisis. 2020, uh, I, I don't quite know how to describe that. I mean, the economy goes down uh, 31%, 31%. <laughs> uh, and, and it, you say two quarters, that's the way it shows up in the uh, Commerce Department reports, but it was actually two months, March and April, which happened to be in 
two different quarters, first mm-hmm. and second. Mm-hmm. But it was a two month like just that's what happens when you turn off the light, shut down the whole economy. That's what happens. But then the third quarter it was up thirty five percent on an annualized basis. So that that was just sort of a strange experiment in turning off the lights. But um, so we have these um, financial crises and then we have recessions. They don't always go together. Nineteen ninety was a recession with no financial crisis. Nineteen ninety eight was a financial crisis with no recession. The economy was doing fine through all that, even though we came within hours of shutting every market in the world. 2008 was interesting because we had both. That was a genuine deep recession, the worst since the Great Depression, and a financial crisis because we saw the sequential collapse of Bear Stearns, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Lehman Brothers, AIG, Morgan Stanley was days away from going bust, Goldman was not far behind, et cetera, until the Fed came in, truncated the process and bailed everybody out. So um, so we just talked about how we're in going into a severe recession. Mm-hmm. Is there is there a financial crisis on the horizon also? And the answer is yes. And you say, well, how do you know that? The signs are there. Nobody's looking. Or I shouldn't say nobody. Very few people are looking, mm-hmm. certainly not the Fed. But we see it in the uh, Treasury yield curve. It's inverted. And just uh, for the for the benefit of the listeners, um, a normal yield curve is upward sloping. So you have time along the x-axis, you have rates along the y-axis, and the curve of rates at different maturities goes up. And that makes sense. If I'm sure. going to you know, lend you money overnight, I'll have a certain rate. If I'm going to lend you money for 10 years, I might want a little more. You or anybody else or somebody lends me money for 10 years, you're going to want a higher interest rate because there's more risk. It's as simple as that. Well, what does it mean when the yield curve is inverted? It means that rates are projected to go lower mm-hmm. at longer maturity. So wait a second. Why would I take a lower rate for a longer term loan? Uh, the answer is I expect interest rates to come down generally. I'm looking, mm-hmm. looking for an interest rate crash, which is sounds like a good thing, but it's not because it would only happen if you had a financial crisis of mm-hmm. some kind. Even more, a little more technical, same idea, but even more disconcerting is the euro dollar futures curve. Now, again, what's a euro dollar? Well, they're, they're dollar denominated deposits and loans among big banks outside of the Fed's jurisdiction. So that's what a euro dollar is. And, but there's a big overnight market. You know, I lent you overnight and then we roll it over the next day and the next day and the next day and so forth. So it's a very short term rate. It's basically an overnight rate. But in the futures market, you can bet on or take a position on what that rate's going to be six months from now, a year mm-hmm. from now, two years from now, et cetera. So it's a it's a long-term bet on a short-term rate. Um, that yield curve is inverted, and that almost never happens. But it, the inversion starts around uh, March 2023, where you know, rates go up between now and then. Well, that makes sense because the, the Fed controls short-term rates. They've told us they're going up. We know they're going up. Just have to listen to them and believe them. But when you get out to around March 2023, they start to go down a lot. And so what does that mean? The euro-dollar market, these are the biggest players in the world. This is not your... Uh, you know, a, a retail account or, you, yeah. you know, your, your your father's Merrill Lynch account or whatever. Mm-hmm. These, these, are the, these are the big guys, sovereign wealth funds, hedge funds, central banks, um, major institutions in, in very large dollar amounts with the biggest banks in the world. So it's serious money. They know what they're doing. And they're saying that rates are coming down starting March. Again, not a good thing. Like, hey, aren't lower rates uh, great for everybody? Well, not if, it, not if it's because there's a dollar shortage, not if it's because there's a liquidity crisis. So we see using standard economic indicators of the kind I described, you know, inventories, real incomes are negative. They're, they're going down. Everyone says, uh, Jay, hey, look at, you know, look at the latest report from the Labor Department, real, uh, you know, income wages went up five percent yeah they did but inflation is eight mm-hmm. percent so your real income went down 
three. It's five minus eight equals negative mm-hmm. three, at least where I went to school. So you've got declining real wages, inventory stockpile, which means no new orders, sales slowing, unemployment going up, uh, layoff announcements almost every day. So that the, the real economy is in terrible shape. But it looks like we might have a financial crisis on the horizon also. So it kind of is setting up like 2008, but maybe worse. I'm just thinking maybe what you're saying might make sense to buy some long-dated U.S. treasuries then. I, I would include that in a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and people ask me all the time, oh, what do you do with your own money or what's a model portfolio, et cetera. And uh, I always explain to people, look, the key is – Diversification. Sure. Now that sounds obvious, like oh yeah, diversification. You know, right? And then, but that people don't really understand what it means. I'll run into people and they say, "Hey, I'm I'm diversified. I've got 50 different stocks in 10 different sectors: uh, consumer non-durables, technology, semiconductors, <laughs> mining minerals, etc." And I say to them, "You're not diversified. You may have 50 stocks." But you have one asset class, which mm-hmm. is equities, mm-hmm. and they're all going to go up together or they're all going to go down together. Not every single stock, but by and large, they're highly correlated. Real diversification, have a, yeah, have a slice of stocks by all means. Have a slice of treasury notes, and I agree with you. Uh, I, I think 10-year treasury notes at mm-hmm. you know, 4.1% yield to maturity, I, yeah. I would say shoot them in because – if the the yield curve signals and the economic signals I'm describing mm-hmm. play out, and they are playing out, those yields are going to come down a lot. Mm-hmm. I know they've run up for the last four months. I get it. I look at the <laughs> tickers open all the time. But um, they're about to turn around and come down a lot. So you'll get very significant capital gains on that. Uh, plus, it's you know there's no credit risk or almost no credit risk. I'd have a big slice of cash, and people go, um, well, what good is cash? There's a low yield and all that. Well, the answer is, uh, yeah, it has a, low, has a low yield, but you're not going to lose anything. First of all, it'll preserve well. Secondly, it could be your best performing asset mm-hmm. in deflation because the real value of cash goes up. Most importantly, it gives you optionality, which means that if everything's crashing and burning around you and you're the one with cash, you can go shopping. You can pick up the bargains. And uh, a good example is probably no better example, Warren Buffett, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. They have over $130 billion of cash uh, or cash equivalents on their balance sheet. Now, why do they have $130 billion of cash? Because they see what I see. They see what's coming, and they want to be the winners who, as I say, go out and buy the uh, – Pick through the wreckage and, and pick up some uh, some diamonds in the rough. Then, yeah, real estate, absolutely not commercial. We're not past the. There's a big transition going on in commercial. It's very tricky ground, but residential, agricultural, natural resources definitely have some gold. I, I recommend a 10% slice. People, you know, Jay, they always want to put words in your mouth. They go, Jim Rickard says sell everything and buy gold. I never said that. I don't think that's a good idea. But 10%, yeah, I do. I do think 10% is a good idea. That that's your inflation protection. It'll also preserve wealth. Uh, and by the way, I forget to mention cash reduces the volatility. It's, it's the opposite of leverage. Mm-hmm. Leverage increases volatility. You can get bigger returns, but you can also have bigger losses. Cash reduces volatility. So if you've got other volatile assets like stocks, you know, and gold and and, and notes and so forth. Um, the overall portfolio volatility is reduced by a slice of cash. So that's real diversification. Mm -hmm. That's what I recommend. That absolutely makes sense. I would gather from what you're saying, then, you believe that the Fed may be going too far in its its tight monetary policy at this point. Yes, I would say they already have. But as usual, the Fed is the last to know. Um, This is just the latest in a long series of blunders going back to 1913. But – yeah, they, they don't know it. And, and here's why. They're not dumb, you know, in the IQ sense, mm-hmm. but they they just have the worst models and they're looking at the wrong indicators. So what is the Fed looking at? 
they're looking at the unemployment rate and they see it's uh it's around 3.5 3.6%, you know, with and they believe in something called the Phillips curve. Mm-hmm. Now the Phillips curve says that there's a trade-off an inverse relationship between the unemployment rate and inflation. So mm-hmm. if unemployment is really low, inflation should be higher because everybody's got a job. If unemployment goes up, inflation comes down. So it's like a seesaw, one side's up and the other side's down. So they see unemployment is really low, which it is statistically the lowest since, uh, I mean, it's been this way for a year or so, but you have to go back to the 1960s to, to find the last time when unemployment was this low. So they assume that that's somehow causing the inflation. Their job is to squash the inflation. And, and by the way, Jay Powell has been very explicit about this. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing, they're raising rates to destroy demand, mm-hmm. to squash the inflation, and they're going to do it by increasing unemployment and causing a recession. And that's not a guess. Jay Powell said that. Yeah. He said it twice, actually. I guess people weren't listening the first time. August 26th in his Jackson Hole speech, and again on September 21st at the press conference following the FOMC meeting that day when they raised rates three quarters of 1%. And he, you know, in the Jackson Hole speech, he said, uh, he was like Nancy Pelosi, he said, I tore up my speech and wrote a new one. And it was only about three or four pages long. It was short and blunt. And he said, uh, he used the word pain mm-hmm. three times in one paragraph. I've never heard a Fed chair use the word pain. <laughs> Ever. He does it three times in one paragraph, so and he meant it. Then in September, he it was much more. He repeated the Jackson Hole theme, but much more explicit, and, and just said, "Sorry, we are going to have a recession. We are going to have higher unemployment, and if that's what it takes to squash inflation, that's what we're going to do because inflation is job one." The the problem is say, okay, well, all right, they, they are responsible for price stability. They should get rid of inflation, aren't they? Doing the right thing. The problem is that the Phillips curve is junk science. It doesn't exist. You can you can plot it. I mean, you can come up with a graph and put down the unemployment rate, put down the inflation rate, mm-hmm. but there's no correlation mm-hmm. uh, in either direction. And, and this was proved in the late 1970s. We had high unemployment and high inflation at the same time. From 2009 to 2019, we had low unemployment and low inflation at the same time. Today, we have low unemployment and high inflation. And it was, I can give you a matrix yeah. showing every combination, mm-hmm. but if all four of them exist, then that means the curve, the Phillips curve, has no predictive value. Right. And right now, if you plot it, the Phillips curve is flat. At least where I, where I went to school, there were no flat curves. If it was curved, <laughs> it was like a curve. So, so, But that's what they rely on. Yeah. So if you've got the wrong model, you're going to get the wrong policy every time. They can't look ahead. Uh, Milton Friedman got some things wrong, but one of the things he got right was that monetary policy acts with a lag. So we haven't really felt the, in, the impact of the rate hikes that started last March. Uh, but they're, they're still going. They, they are going to, you know, um, raise again in December. You know, you can debate whether it's 75 basis points or 50. We'll, we'll know when we get closer to the date. And probably again on February 1st, which is the next meeting, and maybe after that. So the, the short answer, Jay, is yes, they are going to continue raising rates. They're fixated on inflation. It will come down, but at a very, very high cost. And meanwhile, when maybe you should be um, easing up a little bit or at least pausing, they're not. And so they're going to take a bad situation and make it worse. So thinking ahead, um, assuming what you're saying is right, it makes sense to me because we're we're hearing a lot of the guidance from corporations uh, expecting the consumer to be weak as we head into the new year. Uh, everything you say rings true to me. Then it seems to me one of the things you want to do maybe is buy some of the U.S. treasuries in the long end of the curve. How does gold perform in a in a market like this? Not so good, you would think. What are your thoughts? 
Well, uh, you know, the, the numbers are that since uh, March of 2022, in March of 2022, not long after the uh, outbreak of the war in Ukraine, gold it wasn't the all-time high, but it was close. It was about $2,043 an ounce. Prior to that, gold hit uh, 2069 um, yeah. uh, you know, the year before. So uh, since then, it's down about 25%. Mm-hmm. So people say a couple of things. Hey, Jim, you know, we're, we're asking anybody, but I'm, I'm sort of a gold resource. So people ask me, they say, mm-hmm. well, you know, inflation has been the highest in 40 years, which is true. Uh, and gold's down 25%, which is true. So what happened? Where's the, where's the inflation protection you talked about, et cetera? Um, and there are a couple answers to that. First of all, you know, gold is down 25% in dollars, but the stock market's down between, uh, you know, closer to 30%. Mm-hmm. So uh, at least gold has outperformed stocks. Uh, that's not much comfort. Down is down. I get it. But, uh, you know, gold is kind of, you know, as I say, it's outperformed stocks and some other asset classes. But the, the reason gold is not soaring in an inflationary environment is because uh, what I mentioned earlier, this inflation is coming from the supply side, not the demand side. Mm-hmm. They're two entirely different kinds mm-hmm. of inflation. Mm-hmm. I mean, inflation means prices go up according to some index, but the source matters. So supply side inflation is what actually a lot of what my book is about. The book sold out. Um, that's that's available now through uh, through Amazon. It's because of the breakdown of the supply chain, so energy shortages, uh, logistics bottlenecks, not enough truck drivers. Uh, not enough truck uh, chassis, actually. Um, there was a, sort of a, a trans-Pacific traffic jam where there were there were fully loaded vessels in Yokohama and Ningbo, which is the port near Shanghai, that they weren't uh, uh, embarking because it was a job. You couldn't unload them in L.A. Like, what's yeah. the point of going across the ocean if I can't right. unload <laughs> my cargo? So you had a trans-Pacific traffic jam, um, and, and all that was true. And it was leading to price increases because, you know, if there's a shortage of goods and, and inelastic demand, then people are going to bid sure. up the price. Now, now, the other kind of inflation is demand. So the first one, the supply is called cost mm-hmm. push. Mm-hmm. Second one is demand pull. This is where consumers have it in their heads. It's, it's a psychological issue. It may be real, but it's driven by psychology. The prices are going up. I better go out and buy stuff right away. So you're thinking of buying a car, refrigerator, or a new sofa, whatever it is. I better go buy it today because if I wait three months, the price is going to be higher. Um, and and then, but that's self fulfilling because if everybody does that, then all of a sudden there's no more furniture, or new cars, or whatever it is, and um, and the price is going up. And that's what we saw in the late 1970s. And I, I lived through that. I remember it very well. I mean, mm-hmm. I worked at a, I was a International Tax Council at Citibank, and they would just give you a raise you didn't even have to ask they would say hey we're going to add you know thirty thousand dollars to your base salary because you know because inflation um and because they're worried about people leaving and switching jobs and all that stuff so it's pretty a uh, pretty wild time and of course gold soared during that entire period but the point is the demand pull inflation mm-hmm. which i described mm-hmm. which did happen in 1970 which is not the case today mm-hmm. we don't have that today that's the kind of inflation that makes gold go up a lot um, cost push does not. And the reason is that it's, it's not, um, it doesn't feed on itself. It actually pushes in the opposite direction. What I mean by that is if prices are, uh, you know, the example I gave, if, if the price of gasoline doubled and you got to fill up your tank, there's something else you're not buying. Mm-hmm. Cost push inflation, you know, the old saying, the cure for high oil prices is high oil. Sure. Because people, people stop using this stuff or, you know, they stay home. Or like I say, if you're, uh, Sad to say, if you're unemployed, uh, you're not buying any gasoline because you're staying home. Um, and so um, it tends to burn out more quickly because 
for bad reasons, which is the, 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 the economy goes into a severe recession. So that recessionary, and I would say disinflationary or deflationary wave is waiting for us down the road, probably in mid 2023. So that's keeping a lid on gold a little bit. But the other, the other reason, here's probably a more important reason. When people say the price of gold, you know, price of gold is up, price of gold is down. What do they really mean? Well, they're talking about dollars. Sure. Because uh, it's, you know, 1650 uh, uh, $1,650 an ounce or $2,000 an ounce, as the case may be. So I always tell people gold gold doesn't change. It's just gold. It's an right. element, atomic number 79, just sits there. Right. What changes is the dollar price of gold, which really is, says more about the dollar than it does about gold. What has the dollar been doing? The dollar has been getting close to all-time highs. You have to go back to 1985, which was the – well, the, it's, it's as high as it's been since 2000, so back 22 years for starters when the euro was at 80 cents. I was in Europe at the time. It was mm-hmm. great. It was like free. You know, because if you were dollar-based, you, know, you, know, you were living large. Um, but before that, 1985, what happened in 1985? That was the Plaza Accord led mm-hmm. by James Baker, and the, the, it wasn't the G7, but it was the five largest economies, including – Switzerland, and they they got together and they concocted a plan to weaken the dollar. They said the dollar is too strong, and they did. They, they knocked it down over over the next couple of years. Well, the dollar is almost that strong today, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, we don't have a James Baker. We don't have the leadership. We don't have we got Janet Yellen who doesn't know anything about what we're talking about right mm-hmm. now. She mm-hmm. she's a, a statistics geek from Berkeley. Who mm-hmm. knows a little bit about labor economics, but she doesn't know anything about monetary policy or fiscal policy. Or sanctions or anything else. But the point being, uh, she's not um, kind of aware of what we're describing. You know, she may look at it on a chart, but she doesn't really know anything about it. Leo Brainerd does over the Fed, but she's not in charge of the dollar because that's the treasure shop. So this strong dollar, which is crushing everybody in the world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're Turkey or Indonesia or uh, Brazil and you have dollar-denominated debt and the dollar is getting stronger, your debt burden is going up. Um, if the dollar is getting stronger, it's axiomatic that the dollar price of gold should be coming down, which it is because because of the strong dollar. So the strong dollar is also a reflection of the dollar shortage, which gets back to what we were talking about earlier in the euro dollar futures, which is um, behind the curtain of the international monetary system. Big bank balance sheets are shrinking. There's a shortage of actually collateral. You've got, um, forget about dollar deposits and so forth. In terms of derivatives, you have one quadrillion dollars. Yes of derivatives spread among the euro dollar banks. For those who are not familiar with the word quadrillion, one quadrillion is a thousand trillion. That's just mind boggling. It is. But all that that thousand trillion dollars, one quadrillion dollars of derivatives positions is all supported by collateral. And not hundred percent, maybe one percent or two percent. Yeah. But you need the collateral. The best collateral are treasury bills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a shortage of treasury bills. Uh-huh. By the way, if I'm Credit Suisse or UBS or Unicredit or one of the European banks, if I want to buy treasury bills, what do I need? I need dollars. Mm-hmm. So and they those, the European Central Bank does not print dollars. That's why the Fed is activating these swap lines. So just to kind of boil it all down, there's a dollar shortage driven by a desire to buy dollar-denominated collateral to support this mountain of a quadrillion dollars of derivatives. Right. That's making the dollar stronger, which is put, putting a lid on the uh, dollar price of gold. 
And it's certainly uh, creating a lot of chaos in the markets. I mean, as you pointed out, if you're Turkey or some of these other countries and you've got to get dollars, it, it seems like a very unstable system to me, James. And, you know, we're, jeez, uh, we're out of time already, and I've hardly begun to, to ask you the questions I had in mind but um, and, and things that are dealt with in the book. But it seems to me you've talked a lot in the past about a new currency, uh, a need for a new currency. Do you see something like that in the near future? Uh, yes. In fact, it's already happening. It's something I've talked about for a long time, but now it is happening. But, Jay, I think it's important to distinguish when we talk about new currency, and you're right, that's happening. Um, distinguish between a reserve currency and a payment currency. Mm-hmm. They're, they're different. They can be the same currency, but they perform different functions. Reserve currency, it's going to be the dollar for a while. That's, that's mm-hmm. really, uh, mm-hmm. very sticky. It's an, it's embedded. It has to do with, uh, you know, for example, the People's Bank of China doesn't have a trillion dollars in hundred dollar bills stacked up on pallets in the basement. <laughs> what it means is that they've dollar denominated securities in the reserves. The securities are the key. I've got treasury securities. Now they're denominated in dollars. I needed dollars to buy them, but I don't have dollars. I have treasury notes, mm-hmm. treasury bills. Um, and, uh, there's no other securities market in the world of that size, liquidity, and then there's a lot else. You need primary dealers, auctions, when issue trading, derivatives, futures, options, settlement, clearance, etc. And above all, you need the rule of law. Yeah. It's a big infrastructure, and it's not easy to change or to re- replace. Or replace, yeah. When we're talking about payment currency, that's different. Uh, you can use baseball cards or bottle caps like we did with your kids. <laughs> you can use anything. All you really have to do is keep score and settle up every now and then and maybe quarterly or whatever. And if you're settling on net, not gross, you need a lot less of, let's call it the real money, to, to settle up. And you can use gold for that. It doesn't mean a full gold standard, but gold is a good, neutral, widely accepted means of settling net payment mm-hmm. uh, or, or deficit or surplus situations. But you can actually, you could have a cryptocurrency. Um, I'm not talking about Bitcoin or anything like it, but... Uh, Something new created by Russia and China and adopted by others, including Brazil and, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could basically use that to, as I say, keep score mm-hmm. and perhaps settle up in gold. That's already underway. The BRICS uh, now call yep. themselves uh, uh, BRICS Plus because uh-huh. uh, they've invited Argentina and uh, Iran and um, Turkey and others to their BRICS meetings. There's something called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, right. Central Asian based. And there's something called the um, Eurasian uh, Economic Union, as sort of Putin's answer to the EU, also Central Asian-based. The, the one common denominator in all three of those, BRICS Plus, uh, Shanghai, and uh, Eurasian Economic Union, is Russia. They're a yeah. member of all three. Right. So they're moving. Russia's Russia just opened a ruble denominated, sorry, rupee denominated account uh, with, the, with the biggest bank in India. Uh, they're talking to Saudi Arabia's talking to China about pricing oil and yuan. Um, there's just a lot, a lot of ferment in that area, and that is getting traction. They all want to get off from under the dollar because we've abused their trust by freezing central bank right. assets. Right, but the dollar is strong, as you're pointing out, and it's likely to continue getting strong until something really serious breaks, I would think. And James, we're, we're, we're out of time. I can't believe it, but there's so many things in your book that we – you know, that I want people to be aware of and, and so that they go out and buy the book. For example, I didn't know that 
you know, you, you say why China is actually on the brink of a world historic collapse rather than being a rising superpower. Well, what we're hearing here all the time is China is the biggest rival to the United States. We got to, you know, got to, we got to man up with our military and make sure that they don't get Taiwan. Um, you know, I mean, the other side of the story, which we're not hearing, China's vulnerability. And I, I haven't read, you know, I haven't read that much about that in your book yet, but these are, there's so many de- de- supply chain issues. You get into the intricacies of, of supply chain issues and what you know what that means for the economy and and how we should how we should prepare for the world uh, ahead that's described in your book and of course that's the kind of thing that all of your books have been addressing is the practical aspects of how we should prepare our own lives for what you perceive uh, in the future and you've had a lot of experience uh, and um, you know obviously a lot of credibility uh, in advising the government uh, and a lot of other people so uh, any last word James before we we part because I, I really hope people buy this book and read it because I think it's so practical in terms of how we should prepare for our lives. Yeah, thank you, Jay. I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, the book's on obviously on the supply chain. It's got three chapters of how it broke, who broke it, and what's going to replace it, what the new supply chain is going, going to look like. But it also has a chapter on inflation, which part of which is coming out of the supply uh-huh. chain breakdown, and a whole chapter on deflation, uh-huh. which people don't see coming, but maybe. So it's it's really an overview. It uh, shines a light on uh, a lot of questions people have. And uh, yeah, it's sold out, available uh, for uh, for pre-sale on uh, Amazon. And, and it's uh, coming out in hardcover, but also an audiobook version. A lot of people enjoy that also. Yeah, well, the book is titled Sold Out, and I expect it will be sold out, James. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Uh, really great to hear from you again. And I want to try to keep up with you on an ongoing basis a little better with on Twitter and so forth. So thank you so much for your time. That's all the time we have for this week. Next week, Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute and Michael Oliver, who writes the Momentum and Structural Analysis newsletter, will join me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 